family. It's been a minute since we last had a chance to worship together. Four years ago, if I'm doing the math right. But it's good to be back. It's good to meet some new friends, as well as to see people I haven't seen in a while, or in a different context. So a few months ago, uh, Pastor Craig texted me an invite to come back and join you for worship, texted me some dates, and then he wrote, and this is his text, I've included the gospel themes for each, uh, each of the weeks from the lectionary. My response back was immediate. I wrote back, you had me at lectionary. <laughs> now, of course, I wanted to come back and worship with you um, and catch up and witness all that God is doing here in this community. But I also think there's something really beautiful and healthy about a Christian community systematically and seriously engaging the whole of Scripture, and more specifically, the teachings of Jesus. I think so often it's so easy to kind of cherry-pick your way through the Bible, picking topics and themes that are, seem relevant or that you comfortably are comfortable with, the community. But when you go through a lectionary, it really disciplines you to say, like, no, Jesus said these things. And because Jesus said them, we take them seriously, right? And so here I am, um, grappling with the text with you, I thank you for the invitation to join you and also the invitation to really, really study this passage and try to figure out, man, what's Jesus doing here? What's he saying? And what does it say to me? What does it say to us? So you've heard the text being read already. Let me ask you this. Where do you locate yourself in this story? So those of you who are like, well, denarius, what is that? How much money is that really? Um, I try to break this down into the equivalent of today's kind of wages and salary, using the California minimum wage, okay? So um, a denarius, a denarius would be something a a day laborer would get for a day's work, okay? Um, And so I kind of, you know, this is probably not perfect for those of you who are scholars of these things, right, or have studied these things more deeply, but let's say $15.50 an hour, okay? California minimum wage. And so you have people who've worked 12 hours, people who've worked 9 hours, 6 hours, and 1 hour, Okay? And if you kind of do the math, you see why the people who got paid the same thing who had worked 12 hours might be a little upset. Because as they're standing there in line, they're doing the math, and they're like, I'm waiting for, I don't know, maybe double what everybody else is getting. Okay? But everybody at the end of the day is getting paid the same thing, which is $15.50 an hour right, for 12 hours of work, whether you worked 12 hours or whether you worked one hour. So which of these workers do you identify with? Do you feel like, man, I've been at this a while. I've been here all day. Or maybe you're the one that kind of has come in the last minute. Perhaps you feel like, well, I'm just kind of, I'm looking for work. Figuratively and literally. <laughs> I'm standing here in the marketplace, and there's no, there's no action. You know, reading this story, I couldn't help but think back to one of the first jobs I had when I was uh, starting out. I worked at a car wash in Atlanta, Georgia. And the way that the car wash worked was you'd work for the first few months in the back. And you'd be vacuuming the cars when they came in. And then after a few months, you proved that you could work hard and you were committed. They would promote you to working up front. 
And that was really, really exciting because you became what is called a finisher. Okay? And the way it worked was you'd be paired with another finisher, and then the cars would come out of the tunnel, you would drive it out, and then you would kind of like dry it off, wax it, put armor on the tires. Okay? And what was really exciting about it is when you got done, you would raise your hand to indicate to the customer that the car was finished, and the customer would work, walk out. And this was, this was the moment of truth. Okay? Uh, the moment of truth is they're going to shake your hand, and the question is how much money is going to be exchanged in that handshake. It's the tip. Okay? And the, the, the tip would range from $2 to $20, depending on you know, what the job was and how generous the, the, the customer was. And then you would split it between the driver's side and the passenger side. Okay? And when this happened a lot too, there was no tip. The handshake, there was no handshake. The customer would just kind of would avert their eyes and get into the car really quick. <laughs> the person on the passenger side would look over to the person on the driver's side and be like, stiff, right? And next car rolls out. Now, on a busy day, I mean, you're coated in sweat. It's car after car, okay? And after a eight-hour shift, a 10-hour shift, you would have a wad of bills in your pocket, okay? And back in those days, I know I'm sounding like I'm really old, um, 50, 60 bucks of cash plus $2.12 on the clock, which is what the minimum wage for, was for a tipped employee, amounted to what seemed like a good day's work, okay? And the economics of the car wash, wash wasn't always consistent, but there's usually some kind of correlation between how hard you worked, how many cars there were, and how quickly you could get through them. And the people who could do it really fast and really well ended up like having large tips. I wonder what it'd be like to work at a car wash owned by a landowner or the landowner that is in this parable. All right? Uh, at the end of the day, it um, doesn't really matter how hard you worked or how many hours you worked. Uh, everybody kind of gets paid the same thing. Some of you may be students uh, studying here at the university or one of the universities in this area. What if you were like, a, you had a professor like this landowner, okay? Uh, at the end of the term, everyone gets the same grade? No matter how many classes they've shown up for or how hard they worked? So this, this story's a little strange, especially in our context. Our context is the 21st century where we emphasize in Western uh, societies, individualism. The economy is organized around the free market, and we say things like, hey, you know what? The early bird gets the worm. And so reading this story at first, we're struck by the unfairness of the owner, identifying perhaps many of us with those who got there first and feel like, hey, you know what? I deserve to be paid more. So what is Jesus trying to communicate through this parable? This morning, I'd like to try and take a closer look at it and three aspects of the story and draw out three points that I think speak to me and maybe will speak to you and speak to us. So let's start off and look at the complaint against the landowner. The people who came first complain at the end of the day, these last men who have worked only one hour, you have made equal to us, who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. Now, this is a, a really interesting turn of phrase here. It's not, you have paid them equally. It's, you have made them equal. Equality. Equality. 
right? So there are people who came first and early and people who came late and last. Who are these people? Now, so in the original context of both Matthew as a gospel as well as Jesus' teachings, or uh, Jesus as a teacher, you have different ways you can kind of read this, or different ways they may have sounded. Okay, in the immediate context of Jesus talking to the Pharisees and his students, there is this insider-outsider group. Okay, uh, there are Torah-observant Jews and the Pharisees who have prided themselves of doing what is right most of their lives. They follow Torah. And then there's this group called the sinners and the tax collectors. And they're kind of following Jesus and getting really excited about things he's talking about. And so one tension here, so one way you could read this is Jesus is talking about those who think they've come first and are pretty good when it comes to following what God wants, and those who just you know, have been doing their own thing but are now coming in and getting a vision of what God's kingdom is all about. There's also in Jesus' student group, those who signed on early and those who have come a little later, okay? Kind of like a startup, okay? You start off in the garage, there's not much money, people are working long hours, and after the movement kind of picks up and the company grows out of the garage, you have like a small company now, and there's people who were there at the very beginning who like put in the hours, okay, and built out the, the structure and the institution when it didn't exist really. And now you have people coming in and quote unquote kind of like reaping the benefits. Another kind of angle, another tension here is in, in, the, Math, in the Mathian community, okay, the community that Matthew is writing to, giving his account of Jesus to this community. Many people say one of the distinctive features of the Gospel of Matthew, it seems that it, it kind of seems to be addressing people who know the Torah very well. Okay? Jewish Christians or Jew- those from a Jewish background who have come to understand Jesus as the Messiah, the fulfillment of Scripture. And that community, as it is growing and becoming more diversified, there's this question of, okay, we have Jewish believers, those who have come up from the Jewish community, the Jewish uh, uh, families, and then Gentile believers who are referred to, not just in Matthew, but in uh, the New Testament as the Goim, which would be those people who are not Jewish. Gentiles, okay? And those of you who know the New Testament know that, like, this is a real tension, okay? Paul, the Apostle Paul, as he's writing to a lot of these early Christian communities, there's this real tension between Jewish believers and Gentile believers and questions about, well, pride of place and which of the rules apply and do we keep all of them or some of them, you know, are some people more holy than others? And there's a whole kind of debate happening here, Okay? And so one way to think of, I mean, think about how this story sounds to people who are grappling with those issues, okay? And kind of the radical message here that Jesus is sending that, hey, before God, we are all equal, okay? And God treats everybody at a certain, way, in a, at a certain level equally. Now, going back to the car wash, um, I remember, you know, those, I told you about the busy days where you're like sweating and you don't have time to stop working. There are also very slow days, and these are the days where it's like cloudy outside and there's rain in the forecast, or maybe it's drizzling. Business slows to a crawl, okay? And everybody who has been like assigned a shift is standing there just kind of like, you know, what's happening next, okay? And you'll sit there, and we had an alleyway at this car wash, and we'd all sit on these benches, you know, waiting for what's going to happen next. And you'd sit there and you'd count, you know, your tips, which were very meager, 
And it didn't matter how long you had been at the car wash. It didn't matter if you were young or old, if you were a seasonal worker, like on summer break, or if you were somebody who was making a career out of it. it didn't matter if you were black, white, Asian, Hispanic, any background. You're sitting there in the alleyway. It's about to rain, and there is no business. Okay? No business. Everybody is in the same situation. Okay? And you're just dreading. Or maybe at this point you're waiting because you know this day's a bust. You could be there all day and you're not going to make any money. The manager's going to come out and say, all right, who wants to go home? Okay, and then gradually as the day progresses, people are getting sent home because there's no, there's no, there's no business. Everybody's in the same situation. This is something that, that uh, Paul says in Romans. You know, it's a, kind of a similar point to the one that I think is kind of in this parable. He says, hey, you know what? At the end of the day, everyone, whether you're coming from a Jewish background or a Gentile background, everybody's in need of God. Jew and Gentile alike are under the power of sin. That's Romans 3.9. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That's Romans 3, chapter 22, or verse 22 and 23. So from Paul's perspective, and I think in this parable maybe even Jesus' perspective, all humans are kind of in the same boat. Big picture, you're sitting there with no work, okay? In, in Paul's thought, everybody's under the power of sin and death, what he says. So when you look at it from that perspective, everybody's equally unemployed before God. We're all running, a little, the, the time is running out, and the day is getting short. Things are, you know, we're all running late, okay? And so then God calls everyone into the vineyard, no matter what the background is, and says, hey, as you work together, I would like to restore the unity that I had planned in the original garden. When all of humanity was created, equal footing before God, created in God's image. We are all created by God and bear God's image and are equal, share equal dignity. And secondly, we're all in equal need of God because something has gone awry. And now we're all stuck in the alleyway. And the storm clouds, right, they surround us. Our human, uh, the human dignity before God, the human need of God, places all us on equal footing. Okay, I'm going to turn the lens a little bit and I'll talk about a second theme in this parable, which is uh, the theme of God's goodness. So to get to kind of this point, we want to go back and look at uh, another, talk about the vineyard and the vineyard owner. We've talked about the workers. I'm going to talk about the vineyard and the vineyard owner. What does this vineyard represent, and who is the owner? So to kind of try to get at this, it's really helpful to look at the wider uh, scriptural context, okay? Uh, scholars call this the cultural encyclopedia of the time or the universe of discourse, which is what would the early church, what would uh, a person who had grown up around the Jewish scriptures, what would they have heard or associated with this imagery of a vineyard? The text that's really, really helpful at getting at this is found in the book of Isaiah. It's uh, the prophet Isaiah speaking to God's people, the people of God, the Jewish people. And in Isaiah 5, Isaiah writes um, about a vineyard. He says, I'm going to sing a song about a vineyard. Um, my loved one, okay, who's the loved one, uh, plant, plants a vineyard and clears out the land. Okay, he cares for it, and he's looking for grapes. He's looking for fruits. He's looking for harvest, okay? But when he looks, what does he find? Well, <clears throat> he finds 
only bad fruit. Okay? So who is the vineyard and who is the vineyard owner? Well, Isaiah says the vineyard is God's people. The ones that God has selected in, in, in the Hebrew scriptures, that's the Jewish community and people that has been called out, Abraham, okay? um, Jacob, Moses, that whole history. Okay? Who is the vineyard owner? The one who calls. That is God who is involved in human history. Okay? It's very interesting. The fruit then, what is God looking for from humanity, from God's people? Very interesting. He looked for what? You see it? He looked for justice but saw bloodshed. Okay? He looked for righteousness but could only hear cries of distress. Justice and righteousness is the fruit that God looks for in the vineyard. And often, what he finds when he looks at humanity is the opposite, violence and distress. Now, this is really interesting. Hold with me. I'm going to stay in Isaiah just a little longer, okay? Verse 8 of chapter 5. It's really clear what God, is, what God thinks is unjust or what is causing the violence. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left. You live alone in the land. Okay? What do you think that's talking about? What does it mean to add house to house and join field to field? We want to try to translate that for our context. Corporation. <laughs> the corporation. <laughs> you know, you're, you're chuckling and laughing, but this is literally, if you can imagine somebody saying, you know what, I'm going to buy up homes and just keep extending my house so it's bigger and bigger. And then my house gets so big that what I'm going to do is just buy up all the land that surrounds my land. And soon, like, I'm surrounded in a big house on all this acreage, and I'm living there by myself. Okay? So, I mean, this is a really important background because it really gets at what Jesus is saying here in the parable. This is the background, okay? So justice and righteousness in, in, in Isaiah have a lot to do with like economic conditions. Let's say, let's say that. All right? So now let's turn back to the parable. Additional commentary about kind of the economics, economics of Jesus' day. This landowner, the fact that at the beginning of the parable, the fact that he is going out to hire workers, can okay, negotiate wages, shows that at least in this story, this is not a great landowner, somebody who's got tremendous amounts of servants. This is rather kind of a small landowner that is involved in the daily, daily operations of his vineyard. Okay? So he himself personally is going out rather than sending somebody to go out. The fact that there are people standing around all day in the marketplace looking for work and not being able to find work also seems to indicate that there's unemployment. Okay? Uh, that people want to work and pay the bills, but there's, there's, there's just not enough. There's not enough jobs. Employment is at an all-time high. Now, it's very interesting. If you look at the economics of the ancient uh, uh, world, <clears throat> to be in a situation where you're a day laborer and you can't figure out like, how you're going to pay 
how you're going to put food on the table every day and pay the bills is an indicate it puts you kind of at a lower state than being a slave. Okay? Because if you were a slave in ancient times, you belonged to a household and you could depend on the your master to actually provide shelter and food. Okay? Didn't have freedom, but you had shelter and food. But somebody who like day to day had to go out and try to find work, okay? Didn't have that security. There are rules in the Old Testament, because this is the way things kind of worked, that basically said in the Torah that if you hire somebody to work for you during the day, you have to pay them at the end of every day. There's no, like, wait two weeks for payday. You pay the person that worked for you that day, that day, okay? And that's because everybody who didn't have land, who had to work in this way, was a subsistence day laborer. Okay, and so when you get one denarius, you're getting enough to barely survive one day at a time. So when you look at the action of the the landowner, who basically says, I'm going to pay you what's right, okay, what that means is not, oh, I'm going to just be generous and, like, give you tons of money because I have tons of money and, you know, I just, I'm just... He's saying, hey, look, I know times are hard. I know you've got to put money on the table, okay? So at the end of the day, if you're willing to work, okay, I'm going to make sure, even though you didn't bring in all that money, okay, I'm going to make sure you have enough money to make ends meet for you. Okay, one commentator, as they were uh, explained this parable, said this... This action of the owner is more charitable than generous. Okay? Giving one denarius to the last laborer would not have appeared as exceptional generosity to those listening to this story who were in this situation, but it would have been heard as an act of justice. Right? This is what is good, it is what is right that people should not be in a situation, should not have to live in a situation where you want to work and can't find work, that you work and that the, the, the money that you make can't make ends meet. It's fascinating, this, uh, this phrase here, um, where Jesus says to, the, to those who are complaining, I can do whatever I want, <laughs> right? Because I'm the owner, even, op- even if I'm operating at a loss, I can do that, okay? Is your eye evil because I am good? This is a very, very interesting phrase, okay? Is your eye evil? A little more Old Testament nerding out here. This phrase, evil eye, okay? It's, uh, it's, it's, it's found in the book of Proverbs. It's fascinating here, okay? A man with an evil eye hastens after riches and does not consider that poverty will come upon him. Person, so having an evil eye is an eye that is kind of stingy, right, and greedy. And Jesus is basically saying to these, these workers that are complaining, hey, guys, like, check your eyes, okay? You have enough to make ends meet for today. What about everybody else? Is it a problem that I want them to have enough to put food on the table? The stingy. This is those of the evil eye, literally, are eager to get rich and are unaware that poverty awaits them, right? And then the opposite in Proverbs, he who has a generous eye, and if you actually look at the word, 
a good eye, okay, will be blessed for he gives his bread to the poor. The evil eye, the good eye, has a lot to do with economics, has a lot to do with our own hearts, and are, you know, are they open and, and generous, or are they closed and like, you know, hoarding, okay? I get what's mine, you get what's yours, right? I was first, I want it all, I want more, okay? Remember, this is not about like bonuses, this is about like da- <laughs> daily wages and survival, Okay? This is saying, hey, I, I've gotten what I need. Okay? I have enough to make my ends meet. Okay? And instead of saying, well, okay, now I want others to have that, I'm kind of saying, no, I'm going to add field to field and room to room. Okay? And have a problem when other people right, are getting what they need to survive. And Jesus compares that. It's fascinating. He says, hey, you know what? This is fascinating in Matthew. He says, you know what? You should should strive to be perfect. And then this is what Jesus says. Strive to be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. Okay? Your Father in heaven, and this is fascinating because the phrase is good and evil appear in this. He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Okay? Beyond that, the framework of all this, of course, is Jesus' vision of the generosity of the gospel, which is that God is not just the kind of God that sends sun and rain on everyone equally, but God is the landowner who says, hey, you know what? I am going to get involved in my vineyard myself, okay? And I will pay the wages myself, even if it costs me everything. That's the gospel. I am getting involved. I am going to pay the wages myself at cost to me. That's the goodness of God. Okay, so we've looked at the workers. We've looked at the vineyard and the vineyard owner. Can we go a little longer? I want to talk a little bit about grace. Is that okay? All right, so did you catch the phrase at the beginning of the parable? Jesus says, I'm going to tell you a parable, but he prefaces and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like... Did you know that this theme of the kingdom of heaven is, like, Jesus was always talking about it? Have you guys covered this already? In fact, if you look at, like, most of the parables in the Gospel of Matthew, they're all prefaced by this. Every single parable, I think almost all of them, Jesus begins the parable by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in the field. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. The kingdom of heaven is like a dragonet that was cast into the sea. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle his accounts. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who, uh, who like a king, arranged for the marriage of his son. The kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins. The kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country. Jesus was constantly talking about something called the kingdom of heaven. Now, although Jesus was constantly talking about this, he was constantly misunderstood. And two of the misunderstandings about Jesus' teachings that still persist today are that the kingdom of heaven is primarily a place, someplace located away from here, and that it is purely in the future. 
It is something that people will get to experience one day. Now, understood this way, the parable of the landowner sounds like it's a parable about the future, and the kingdom of heaven amounts to getting paid equally at the end of the day. And we wonder about, okay, so how little do I do now, and how much do I do now? Okay, and we're doing, we're doing the math. But what if we listen to this parable in the light of Jesus' other teachings about the kingdom? Yes, Jesus did seem to talk about the kingdom as being in the future. That is, that is a part of Jesus' teachings. But another part of Jesus' teachings that are equally important is that Jesus emphasized the present reality of the kingdom. The kingdom is now. The kingdom is near. The kingdom is here. Okay? The kingdom of God has come upon you. That's what Jesus would say. And so Jesus would talk about it as a present reality that was growing into the future. Now, understood this way, I would suggest the parable of the landowner is more about an invitation to come in the work in the vineyard and then get paid one day in the future. Rather, the invitation is not about reward. Okay? The invitation is about the work. Okay? Now, many of the workers notice in the story, what were they doing before they got called? They were sitting around, okay? And it's very interesting. They were standing in the marketplace. Idle, okay? He went out and found others standing idle, okay? And this happens at hour three, I mean, hour nine, hour six, and then hour 11, okay? And you get the sense that, like, people are like, you know, like, I don't know, have you been to, like, the mall? <laughs> just wandering around, doing, you know? Just wandering around, waiting for something to do and not really doing anything, They want to work. They want to do something meaningful, something productive, but they haven't been given the opportunity. And so for them, the opportunity to work itself, not receive, not receive a paycheck, is an experience of grace. There is a privilege and pleasure to participate in God's work now. It is not a means to some other end. I'm reminded of uh, a scene from a show that has become a bit of a guilty pleasure uh, for me. I'm binging it too much, okay? It's a show called Yellowstone, and it's about life on a ranch in Montana. Have any of you guys, you guys, some of you guys watched this? All right, I'm going to tell you a little bit about it in case you don't. Okay, there's a rancher played by Kevin Costner and his family who are trying to protect a ranch. He, actually, he's one of the landowners here. <laughs> he's got a lot of land in Montana that he and his family have uh, worked for generations. And as uh, Montana is becoming modernized, there's people who want to, to you know, buy, up the, buy the land and develop it. So you know, the, like the, the, the subplot or the plot throughout every season is kind of like, can they, keep, can they protect the ranch? Can they keep the ranch? Okay? So it's really hard you know, when you're watching this to, you know, who's the real hero and you know, who's, the, who's the star of this series? Kevin Costner is an amazing actor. You have, like, you know, all the star cast that surround him. And then, but, you know, the really beautiful thing about the show is actually the land, like Montana. I've never been, but I'm like, I want to get up there. So the scene I have in mind is from season two, episode three, and it's a conversation between two main, main characters, Rip and Beth. Rip is a longtime employee of the ranch. Um, he's second in command and the head of the ranch, but recently he's been displaced by the return of the ranch owner's son who's kind of, you know, had a falling out with his dad, but he's come back. And so he's come back, and, and what this does is it kind of displaces Rip, um, and 
all the responsibilities and kind of prestige he had with being kind of the, the head hand has been kind of transferred to the son. And now Rip is doing like, they call it the, the low man work, okay? Which means he's like feeding the animals and cleaning out the stalls. And he moves even back into the bunkhouse, which is where like everybody else stays, right? So he's been kind of, you could say, demoted. So Beth is the ranch owner's troubled daughter, and she and Rip are childhood sweethearts, and she can't stand watching Rip's demotion. So she catches him in the middle of his chores and points out this is actually exactly what he was doing when she first met him, shoveling stuff out of the stalls and feeding the animals. This is what she says. Beth, I'm going to just read you the lines. This is exactly what you were doing the first time I saw you. Right here, too. Rip. Well, the more things change. Beth. If Casey's in charge, things are only going to get worse. There are the ranches, Rip. Rip. Not for me, there ain't. Then Beth says, look what loyalty's given you, huh? And then this is the, this is the line here. Uh, Rip says, yeah, and then the, the screen pans out to this, this shot right here. And he, like, looks out at the, the setting sun, kind of chuckles, says, it's awful, isn't it? For Rip, it's never about, like, climbing the ladder. It's not about the payday even. He's just glad that he gets to work on the ranch. He gets to work on the ranch, and every day, scenes like this are the norm. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Discipleship, points out, they, the followers of Jesus, recognize the call of discipleship itself as grace and grace as that call. Jesus, for them, is not a means to some other end. Jesus is an end, is the end in himself. Thus, the call to be with him, to work with him, is grace. Not something they want to get from Jesus. Okay? Grace is not something we receive through Jesus, but the opportunity we have to be his student. And so this is the same Jesus that as he journeys with his uh, students and disciples, invites them to experience the satisfaction of what he is experiencing as he works in God's vineyard. In John 5, his disciples return to him after finding food and see him wrapped up in a conversation or wrapping up a conversation with a woman who looks overjoyed. She's heard about a God that knows her and loves her. They urge him to eat. As she's walking off, and he says to them, guys, I have food you know nothing about. They're confused. They're like, did somebody else come and give him a meal? Okay. And you know what Jesus says? He says, my food is to do God's will. Okay. And as I do God's will, as I am involved in the work of the vineyard, Okay, as, I am wor- as I'm participating in the kingdom that Jesus spoke of, there is a pleasure and a satisfaction that is better than the pleasure and satisfaction that I get after enjoying a nice meal and sit there with like, my stomach really, really full, which I don't know about you, but that feels really good, doesn't it? That feels good. But have any of you experienced the satisfaction that Jesus is talking about? There is a pleasure and a satisfaction that goes deeper than having your belly filled. And that is the pleasure of 
aligning your life and your day to what God is doing in the world. There is a deep satisfaction there. And Jesus says, I want you to follow me so you can experience that. Here's the invitation that he gives to his disciples and that he extends to us. Open your eyes and look at the fields. And here we're switching from vineyards to, I think, like wheat or something, okay? Look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be what? May be glad together. May be glad together. All right, let's try to land the plane here. Three aspects to the story we've talked about, right? We look at the workers, and we are challenged with the idea that, hey, at the end of the day, we're all fundamentally kind of in the same place, in equal need of God, okay? When we look at the vineyard and the owner of the vineyard, we are both comforted and challenged by the idea that God wants people, including us, to have our basic needs met, okay? And he desires us to have that desire too, okay? And that's what goodness is. And thirdly, the grace of the story, when we look at the work that we are being invited to, the grace is to find the fulfillment and joy of living life every day, here and now, with God. I think in the, the, some of the information that was shared about my family, you know, I have a nine-year-old daughter. You know, I still remember, and I'm now getting sentimental with my dad. I st- as a dad, I remember when she was really little, and she used to uh, follow me around everywhere. And whatever I did, she would just be kind of like, I want to be with you, and I want to do that with you. Actually, one of my favorite pictures, I tried to find it, but I couldn't find it. It's like in the arca- archive somewhere. I'm, I'm like watering like, like a plant. And my daughter is standing next to me, like, with her little toy watering cup, and she's pretending to water, right? So one of the things that I grieve and I'm getting sad about is as she gets older, I'm like, all right, I'm going out to water some stuff. And she's kind of like, see ya. (laughs) Right? Uh, And so I've been kind of like, hey, you know, my daughter doesn't want to spend time with me anymore, right? But what I've been learning to listen for is, is um, the invitation she still extends to me to hang out with her. It just looks different. It's not her saying, hey, I want to just hang out with you wherever you're doing. But it's kind of like, hey, do you want to watch like the slime video on YouTube? And I'm, I'm like, no, but <laughs> not really. But, but then I'm, what I'm learning to hear is like, this is an invitation from my daughter to like into her world, right? Right? Then, then if, I, if I do that, she basically will sit there and be like, hey, do you want to make some slime? And then once again, I'm kind of like, no, not really. <laughs> right? But I, I'm learning to hear. I'm getting better. I am, I'm growing the ears to hear, as Jesus says, to, to say like, hey, this is an invitation of grace. Okay? This is an invitation to experience a, a deepening of my relationship with my daughter. And, you know, making slime is fun. It is fun. <laughs> right? The invitation that comes to us every day, uh, I want to suggest to you, God is like that, and the invitation to experience and live in God's kingdom and to participate in the economics of God's kingdom, right? I don't know where you are this morning, but I want to suggest to you, I want to invite you to listen for that voice that invites you to, no matter where you are, 
accept and rest in God's grace. Whether you feel like you're like in the field or waiting to get into the field, hear that voice that says, you know what? I know your life. I know the situation. I love you. Right? Invite the invitation that God gives some of us to, to open our eyes, right? To develop good eyes and good hearts that look to each other with generosity and compassion. And then lastly, I want to invite you this year, for those of you who are students, and those of you this week, today, to listen to that voice that says, hey, let's do today together, okay? Let's do some kingdom work together. And as we do that, in small ways and in large ways, let's experience life the way God intended, which is a life that is full of satisfaction and joy. So I hope that's your prayer today. If you hear that voice, uh, my prayer is that in your own way, you'll respond. But as we kind of close things out today, I just want to invite you to pray. And if it's your desire to respond to God, uh, to respond to God in prayer. That's our heads. God, we are grateful for your economy. We are grateful for who you are and the way you have included, invited, and walked with each of us. So help us to have your eyes and heart and help us to listen for your invitations each day. We want others to experience the goodness of your kingdom too. We pray this in your name. Amen.